Welcome to another exciting episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, celebrating the adventures of a galaxy far, far away. And in this case, perhaps another galaxy even further away still, because the topic for this episode is Ahsoka, the latest live-action Star Wars limited series streaming on Disney+. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ryan Daly, and helping me discuss the Ahsoka series is a proverbial Star Destroyer full of guests. First up, he is back again after appearing on the most recent episode. Please welcome DC Dave. What's up, Dave? Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for coming back. I, I feel like I just never left the, the Zoom chat with you. You've been here the whole time. The whole time. I, I refuse <laughs> to leave, I think. <laughs> Next up, the conjugal co-hosts of the Married Watching Cartoons podcast. Welcome back, Jonathan and Maggie Schaefer-Hames. Hello. Hello, Ryan. Back on another show with you yet again. Who is that? A little bit of Howard Cosell almost? Might have been. Actually, no, now I can't stop. Oh, God. (laughs) Hey, good. Go. Oh, stop it. All right. Hi, Ryan. Always great to be on. Thanks for having us back. Uh, Maggie, do you want to get the uh, obligatory high Delvin out of the way? Oh, yes. Hi, Delvin. <laughs> uh, and finally, my personal favorite Star Wars fan, the Mandalorian to my baby Yoda. Please welcome back my wonderful wife, Angela Drew. What's up, Ange? Thanks for letting me back on the show. <laughs> Dave, you're a little bit of an odd man out crashing our couple's night party, but I, I don't want you to feel too awkward. So for the rest of the recording, Ange and I will just pretend like we don't know each other. Uh, that works for me. I, I try to do that with my wife every time I'm out in public with her, but she seems to, you know, not be able to let me go. Oh, chases me down. It could be that whole wallet thing. I don't know. All right, all right. Ahsoka is the latest installment in what has sort of come to be known as the Filoni-verse of Star Wars. Uh, That is the series shepherded by writer and director Dave Filoni. The titular character, Jedi Knight Ahsoka Tano, debuted in the animated movie Star Wars The Clone Wars. Her adventures continued for seven seasons of the Clone Wars animated series and also spun off into the animated series Star Wars Rebels and partially in the live-action series The Mandalorian. The series, Ahsoka, picks up not only her journey, but also threads begun in Star Wars Rebels and The Mandalorian. So in as much as this is a brand new story, like all Star Wars, it's part of a larger saga. And in particular, it plays out like a sequel to Rebels. It's been a while. Things have changed. I started hearing whispers about Thrawn's return as heir to the Empire. We have to prepare for the worst. The Jedi fell a long time ago. There aren't many left. Perhaps it is time to begin again. Ahsoka, original series streaming August 23rd. Before getting our overall thoughts on this series, I want to know how familiar each of you were with these characters coming into the series. Were each of you caught up on Clone Wars and Rebels? And if so, briefly... What did you think of these characters that you already knew? So, John, Maggie, we can start with you. Were you guys caught up with these other shows first? 
mostly and to different degrees. I'd seen some, but not all of Clone Wars and most and the beginning of Rebels. I think, Maggie, I think you saw even less of Clone Wars. And I have very few memories of Clone Wars. But as I watched Ahsoka, I remembered a surprising amount of what I had seen from Rebels. So I definitely watched enough of that. Well, I watched almost enough of that show to get what was going on. You actually, yeah, that that show would be constantly reminding you of things that I had forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. So we were we were familiar with the characters. We had opinions about them. We knew the basic plot. I knew what had happened at the end of the last one. Yeah, so. I didn't. I hadn't known that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Would you say I'm just in general a fan of the character Ahsoka or of Ahsoka? Yeah. I don't know if I remembered a whole lot about her. I remember distinctly her fight with Vader in the squishy. <laughs> I think of it as like the the ceiling and the floor coming together in that that Sith temple thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really all I remember of her from the show. And I I mean I like Rosario Dawson, so I liked her here. I thought she was pretty cool. Yeah, Ahsoka Tano is one of my favorite characters in in Star Wars. Before going into this. Cool. So I uh, have a similar story in that I had seen some key episodes of the Clone Wars, but it's a big blank for me. So I only know the big beats of that show. And then Rebels, I was all in in season one and part of season two. And then life happens and I ended up watching the last few episodes of the final season. So I knew how Rebels wrapped up. I did have some questions during Ahsoka that I had to look up to see, did I miss something from Rebels uh, with her relationship with Sabine, for instance? No, I didn't. And you didn't. It just just wasn't there. (laughs) It wasn't there. But, yeah, so I I came into it, though, um, enjoying the character of Ahsoka. I knew she was a fan favorite. I had a, a little bit of a personal connection in an odd way with the character of Ahsoka because I had met the voice actress, for Ahsoka um, once or Eckstein. twice, Ashley Eckstein, and, or Eckstein, and as it turns out, her husband uh, David Eckstein uh, played for the San Diego Padres when I was a huge fan of the Padres, and so I had met him a couple occasions. So every time I see her at a convention, I see him, I say hi, that kind of thing. So um, I, I have a, a love for Ahsoka from that perspective i guess so i was all in on this one i was really excited for this show to kind of bring us into the next chapter of those characters cool cool uh and Ange, we have actually talked about ahsoka on a previous episode actually after her live action debut on the mandalorian but uh just as a refresher what were your thoughts and feelings about her coming out of those shows yeah, so I, I was totally caught up on Clone Wars and Rebels, but it has been a while since I've watched them. Going into us focusing on Ahsoka in Mandalorian Season 2, we rewatched some of those key episodes, which reminded me how amazing she is. Um, I really do love that character in Clone Wars. And actually, today we were rewatching some of her appearances in Rebels, which are, which are okay, um, but she's definitely kind of more in the background like Dave, I, I kind of had a moment where I thought maybe I forgot some really key moments from Rebels, and then I, I don't think I did. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I was I was um, pretty caught up, and and I liked Ahsoka a lot. In like I said, in Clone Wars, I was reluctant about her in Mandalorian season two, 
And then that reluctance did continue. Mm. I don't know if you want me to go more in depth than that. No, no <laughs> right we'll, now. we'll pick up okay. on that later. Um, the character of Ahsoka grew on me over the course of Clone Wars. Like my initial reaction to meeting this character was, all right, this is kind of a new, you know, angsty teenage girl character. I'm not sure how much I'm going to dig this, but over the course of time, I grew to love her as the POV character through watching this war and watching the way it changes the galaxy, watches the way everything kind of becomes darker and more brutal and watching her, her view of characters like Anakin and giving us this new perspective on an aspect of the Star Wars saga that I really wasn't a fan of at the time, which was the prequels. Um, but through her POV, I kind of, I opened up and, and she did become a favorite character of mine, but something else was kind of nagging me after Rebels, even before this series came about. And it was this idea, this question that I was coming into this series, hoping I would get an answer for. And it was, what is Ahsoka's destiny? What is the major point of this character? Because through so much time and so much character buildup and so much development over years and years of the Clone Wars and and then leading into Rebels, it seemed like her natural her natural endpoint would be a confrontation with Darth Vader. It seemed like they had to come. Yeah. Except we knew that she couldn't be the one to defeat him and she couldn't be the one to ultimately redeem him. That was already predetermined by chronology. And we knew that that was Luke Skywalker's destiny that had already been written. So what is her point with that? And also this idea that by the end of Clone Wars, she had walked away from the Order. Was that just a gimmick to help her escape Order 66? Or was that going to be leading a new character path for this this woman to kind of find new avenues, new explorations of the Force, what it means to be a good a, a Jedi in practice, but not in in name, or or what other types of Force users might she go out and identify and explore and and encounter if she's not really a Jedi Knight. And I thought all of those might be interesting stories to do and place to take the character. But that's not what Dave Filoni ultimately did. And I'm, I, I will say I'm a little bit disappointed in his decisions because he ultimately, like, he, he treats her in this series like she is like a normal Jedi Knight, even taking on her own apprentice at one point, which we never saw. And this is kind of the thing that we've been, we've been dancing upon is that at some point in the 10 years between the end of Clone War or the end of Rebels and the beginning of this series, she and the, one of the characters from Rebels, Sabine, she took her on as, a, an, as an apprentice and was going to train her as a Jedi. Sabine never displayed any Force sensitivity when we knew her. They actually, brought, they, they actually taught her how to fight with a lightsaber or the darksaber despite not having any Force affinity. So this is a little bit of a retcon and I'm not sure it was ultimately necessary, but I, I don't want to get into that, all of that yet because I do want to want to stay in the positive realm. So I'll ask each of you, big picture, overall positive impressions. What were the things that you liked that you that you gravitated or that you connected with? Uh, and we'll switch it up a little bit. Uh, Dave, you can go first this time. What was the first thing that you really liked about the series? I liked bringing in these characters. I liked bringing in this new galaxy. I loved bringing in Grand Admiral Thrawn. 
I loved the world building and the setup that we got. Um, I think this is where we're going to differ on opinion in that I loved the choices Dave Filoni made. And I really appreciate that. I feel if there's anyone that's got George's vision, at least an understanding of that, it's Dave. And I think that, that Dave is trying to, trying to work around what was given to him or what the Star Wars universe is set up for with the sequel trilogy. And I think he's doing the best job he can to kind of shepherd these characters and these situations and shoehorn them into this somehow Palpatine returned. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we've got to somehow get from what we saw at the end of Return of the Jedi to what we see at the beginning of The Force Awakens. I don't know that we're going to enjoy the entire journey, but it's a journey that the Star Wars universe is going to have to take, and we're going to have to ride it out. And I think that Dave is, overall, my impression is that Dave is going to do his best to kind of answer and weave his way through some of these questions that we have about how does this character exist or not exist? Why didn't we see them in the sequel trilogy? So forth and so on. So overall big picture, I loved it. And I I love some of these choices of, you know, picking up where Thrawn was, bringing Ezra back home. I, I like this slight force ability that we're seeing from Sabine. I liked how Ahsoka is. I love the setup of these new characters. Uh, that was definitely a favorite of mine was uh, Balin and Shin. Those two were top-notch for me. So I, I think there was a lot of positive that I got out of the show. I, I definitely agree with you that Filoni, his superpower seems to be taking George Lucas's vision and his idea of this world, this universe, these characters, and executing it in a way that I think is more exciting and more palatable and more personal and relatable to the audience, maybe, than George was, who was always very, a little bit detached himself, I think, from, from humanity. I think, I think Filoni is a good bridge for that. Um, Ange, what were your positives? So I think it looks great. There's some just really awe-inspiring scenes. I, I really like how they show us some like different technology and kind of like, you know, you think you've seen Star Wars and there's nothing about it that you can be like, oh, that's that's kind of like magical. And, and they were able to do that. I, I really liked that. I love the Night Sisters um, from Clone Wars. So I was really, really glad to see them brought back in. I mean, undead stormtroopers, like, yeah, sign me up. That's That was, like, really cool. I, I'm i a huge fan of Thrawn, so I, I'm trying to balance this. So I'm really glad that he's being pulled into the universe and hopefully we'll make some more appearances. But um, some of his, his characterization I'm going to have to come back to when we start talking about some of the things we had issue with. But, yeah, I mean, I... I didn't dislike this show. I did. I do like this show, but there's a few things that kind of make me cock my head. But I, I do. I do love how it looked, and I, I do like also like like Dave said. I, I really do like um, Balin and Shin, and they have this cool dynamic. and And Shin is like just the right amount of unsettling, and um, like you get to see this this more I don't know human 
relationship between like a, a master and apprentice. Like they're not Sith, but they're still like dark side users, which I thought was interesting. I feel like there was a really cool story going on with like Balin's side quest, which I really wish we had gotten more than just teased about that. But it, it seemed like he was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, Maggie. Okay, I agree. Visually, I thought it was stunning. Very Star Wars-y. Witches of Dathomir, also very cool. (laughs) This seems like a very strange thing for me to say. I like that Hayden Christensen got to come back as Anakin in live action. I was the target audience when the prequels came out. I think I was 10 when the first one came out. Um, And my dad took me to see it. And I thought Hayden Christensen was dreamy. Uh, not for very long, but I did for about five minutes. Uh, so I actually despised those movies, but really liked that he got to come back. I thought that was really cool. And I liked seeing him again. Uh, I also liked Thrawn, too. And then the costuming and the makeup uh, to make the characters, these live action characters look like their animated counterparts. They did a very good job with that. I thought Ahsoka looked gorgeous. Rosario Dawson is amazing, but everybody looked like they were all very recognizable. You knew instantly who everybody was. Yeah. Just to echo what Maggie was um, saying, what, well, what everyone was saying, just visually, it was great. Um, uh, this was the best looking, um, outside of aspect, some aspects of Andor that we've seen, but just. In total use of just how they were able to have just the space battles and the uh, lightsaber battles, it was for the most part the best use of that little that dome. The volume, yeah, you that. Know, that's, yeah, it was, yeah, it, and I think the fact that Andor, I think, is the only show that didn't mm-hmm. use that, and that was done on all real sets. So I kind of put Andor in its own separate category that yes, way. And I do, I do too, for a lot of reasons. But this one, I thought, was the best use because it seemed to mix a lot of practical effects with that. Mm-hmm. It just really looked good. Some of it, almost to a fault. You know, some of the stuff, you know, were a little too, well, I shouldn't, this isn't a criticism, but we're very line for line Star Wars. And, but I'm not even using that as a criticism, uh, like just like the space battles where, uh, Sabine and Ahsoka were fighting off the, the fighters and going through the asteroid field felt exactly like the scenes they meant were meant to emulate on purpose. I thought that was good. It was a reminder that yes, they could still tell Star Wars. They could still make things feel like Star Wars. In fact, most of the positives and negatives that I have can be wrapped around the idea that this reminds me in all ways of what of watching The Force Awakens. Mm. It felt very Star Wars. It feels like there's a plan. It feels <laughs> like there's a lot of potential. <laughs> However, you know, which and we'll get to that later. Yeah. But- and uh but to echo it what Maggie was saying in particular, I do like, even though I'm not a fan of the the prequels, I am a big anti-fan of many aspects of the prequels. But all that being said, the prequels have achieved probably with the weight of legacy and just time, legitimacy. And a lot of that part has been the work of Dave Filoni who through the work of the prequels has redeemed at least the character of Anakin Skywalker. And so it was really, really awesome to get to see Hayden Christensen Hayden Christensen get to come on and basically play the Anakin from the Clone Wars mm-hmm. and, and get that sort of uh, redemption to just touch that a little bit live to make it seem a little bit real. It was, it was cool with Obi-Wan, even with my problems with that, to get to see Ewan McGregor get to do the same thing. Yeah, agreed. So that was great. I'm glad that happened. I, I 
hope that they do more of that sort of thing. Bless his heart. I, I still don't think Caden Christensen is the greatest actor. I think he, he does have kind of a limited range, but he knows this character. And I think I, I am so glad for the fandom that has embraced him and for his own sake to be, to have a, a new experience with Star Wars that is much more generous, much more embracing and warm than it was 20 something years ago when, when he was first starting. Uh, I think it is, is terrific for him. And yeah, I remember reading, uh, seeing him. He was like, it, one of the one of the Star Wars celebrations or one of the the conventions or something. He was like, "Yeah, I had to, I had to binge watch all of Clone Wars in preparation for this." He's like, "I I never had a scene with Ahsoka. I never interacted with her. This was a completely different re- relationship that I had to learn about from scratch." Uh, so it was interesting to see that. And and yeah, when we do see him in uh, Episode Five and the whole world between worlds playing that different type of character, you're right. It is very much an Anakin from the Clone Wars, which was a a different version. And it was kind of cool. It was all right. I agree with, with what you guys were saying about visually. Um, again, I, I put Andor kind of, in, it's in a separate category because it was all done with practical, uh, like sound stages and locations. And this one was done in the volume like they did with, uh, Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan. I think this is, a breathtakingly stunning to look at series very often. Um, definitely the best visually, aesthetically nice, like, like show from the Disney plus series. Aside from the fact that every planet seems to have the same overcast gray sky. But besides that, I, I love the settings and the landscapes. They all have this kind of beautiful painterly quality. The imagery of the night sister castle on Peridia with the star destroyer hovering over it. Even though, and Angie knows this, it drives us crazy because a Star Destroyer in atmosphere makes no damn sense. It's still really, really, really cool to look at. And it's one of those things where I'm just like, that's a really cool shot. This, I hate this, but that's a really cool shot. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, and, and, and yeah, to, to Dave's point, like, I, I was, it was fun to see these characters in live action, to see Hera and Chopper and the whole seeing the ghost again in action, like these, these things that I really enjoyed from Star Wars Rebels and, and getting another chance to see them. This is a really geeky thing, but in the first episode when Sabine is like taking off and like racing down the street of Lothal, she is chased by two New Republic E-wing starfighters. Uh, and these were ships that debuted in the graphic novel star or the comic series Dark Empire back in like 1993 or 94. And I always loved that ship. So to actually see them done for the first time in a series, I love the E-wing. So that was really cool. But yeah, one of you were saying like there were a lot of things about this that felt like Star Wars to me and like the naughty creatures, these nomadic little turtle things on Peridia. It felt a little bit like the first time you see the Jawas or the Ewoks or something that felt like kind of classic Star Wars. Um, I liked like the looks of the, the assassin droids, the look of these undead stormtroopers and the how they kind of have like after being away for a decade in this other world with the night sisters, how they have these like red stripes that are a little bit uneven and asymmetrical. And they're kind of like hybrid stormtroopers, night sister, because they've all kind of like taken on like this move ritual. They worship Thrawn like a God. And then they're able to be summoned back from the dead, like through this dark magic. And you just see this glint of green light behind the lenses of their masks and the way they kind of shamble up the stairs, it's all of a sudden you get this horrifying, like, Night of the Living Dead moment in Star Wars, which I've never seen before. But it's like, hey, I didn't know I needed this in Star Wars, but I kind of do now. 
That stuff is great. I thought the costuming, as you said, was great. Um, Balin and Shin, two characters that I agree are fascinating to think about. I wish we got a lot more meat there, and I, I think we will in the future. I'd love that their outfits kind of look like a knight and squire, uh, that type of pairing to have like the, the older Jedi and his apprentice. Um, to me, I, I kind of I kept wondering if Shin was actually his daughter, but I guess not, or they're not exploring anything like that. But uh, yeah, to Ray Stevenson, who unfortunately passed away, and we're not going to see him play this part anymore, but he carried himself with such almost like Shakespearean gravitas in this part. Like he just, he reminded me of like Act One Macbeth, and I just thought that was something really, really cool. Meanwhile, his apprentice has like this weird killer Russian doll looked about her that was just like, like this this blonde sort of silver-haired goth look that was kind of creepy. There was something intense about Shin's eyes. Um, I, I'm finding like most of my compliments about the show have more to do with the aesthetics because I love the looks of it. I love the costuming. I thought the music was fantastic. Uh, the music was conducted by Kevin Kiner, who also did the music for the Clone Wars animated series. There were all these things about the look and the feel and the sensory approach to the show that I thought was beautiful and I wanted to spend more time in this world. It was when they started talking that I got mad, <laughs> but I'll come back to that later. Uh, so yeah, um, before we kind of like shift gears and dive into more of the discussion, um, I do just want to hit on some of the, the things that we're talking about for, for the characters. And just looking at our cast, Ahsoka Tano, the main character, is played by Rosario Dawson, as we said. Sabine Wren, played by Natasha Lou Bordizo. Hu Yang, my favorite droid now, uh, is voiced by David Tennant. Hera Syndulla, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Morgan Elsbeth, uh, the, the returning character from The Mandalorian Season 2, who we find out is like a sort of descendant of the Night Sisters. Uh, she's played by Diana Lee Inosanto, who is the goddaughter of martial arts legend Bruce Lee. Balin Skull, played by Ray Stevenson, as I said. Shin Hadi, played by Ivana Sakno. And Grand Admiral Thrawn, played by Lars Mikkelsen. So as far as characters were concerned, I mean, listen to that cast that you just mentioned. And there was a lot of, you know, some of it was, who are these people like Shin and Balin? Uh, who turned out, I, you know, I thought they were going to be our big bad guys until Throng came around. I didn't expect them to be kind of who they were. And they did have such depth. And I am so saddened by the loss of Ray Stevenson that we're not going to see where his story goes. And I do want to talk about his story as we get to the end there. But, you know, I have to say that for me, yeah, Huyang was great, but I'm sorry, no one will ever replace Chopper as my favorite droid ever. <laughs> so I love that little war criminal. I love the uh, played by you himself. know why is I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, I said Chopper, who was uh, played by himself. Yeah. <laughs> yes, played by himself. Uh, he so aesthetically, he looked amazing. If you look at the difference between the live action Chopper that we saw for brief moments in Rogue One. Versus the chopper that we got now. It's light years ahead and he just looks incredible. His movements are incredible. They really put a lot into it. Um, I love that you can almost understand exactly what chopper is saying and, you know, chopper questioning Hera as to why it's a problem to shoot down a capital ship as it's leaving uh, a port. <laughs> 
you know, it's very in character for Chopper. Uh, but I loved the the tease. They didn't give us everything right away, right? We got we had to wait until episode two for Hera, and then we didn't get the ghost in episode two. We got the Phantom in episode two. So they they fed it to us in a good portion each time. Um, I loved the actress that played Sabine. She did, I thought, a fantastic job capturing the spirit of that character, uh, capturing who Sabine is and the struggles that she has and, and the sisterly love that she has for Ezra and what has been driving her. Um, I felt that the characterization of Ezra uh, was spot on. I mean, it was as if Ezra had come out of the animated show and write like this, this man had been playing Ezra his entire life. He, I think he just got uh, Ezra nailed down uh, I, we can talk about Thrawn in a few Thrawn in a few minutes because I think we all have a lot to say about him. Uh, right. But any general comments on the cast members or things that you liked, things you didn't? I agree with Chopper because Chopper is my second favorite sociopathic robot in Star Wars, and this the other one is in Knights of the Old Republic. <laughs> and someday we'll get HK. What is it? HK fifty-seven or forty-seven? 47. Thank you. Someday we'll get HK-47 in live action. But until that day, I'll have to deal with Chopper, because not only does he argue with Hera about the wisdom of knocking down, when she says back to him, yeah, otherwise it'll it'll fall down on and kill all those people there, his response is, like I care. That (laughs) robot is a complete and utter sociopath. He almost killed Artu in the cartoon. But just for a mild negative on that, I mean... It was, yeah, he really nailed the look of a lot of the characters. But in most cases, I have a hard time seeing the characters that I saw in the animated show in this live action version of them. Part of that is, yeah, it's it's years later and they would have changed and that was fine. And I didn't mind that. It, it was fine on that. But the only character that really um, sang out to me was Ezra who, like you said, looked, it was, man, that was incredible what he did. Except it, somewhere in the meantime, Ezra, I guess, while he took off with Thrawn in the end, he handed the idiot ball over to Sabine. Mm-hmm. So he he wasn't carrying it anymore like he had been through the entirety of that show. And now it's Sabine's turn. But well, we'll it get ever. to there. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I liked the cast. You know, even my criticisms that nothing is due to the the portrayal, even the dialogue is pretty, you know, decent. Is it a well written all of this? It it was just fun in that respect. Was- I think Angela and I are in the same wavelength on something. We I th- we might have a little bit of a controversial take on the casting of two of the characters. Uh, do you want to lead on it? Oh, you want me to present it so that people are mad about it? They're mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that this was this was an unpopular. And, and Ryan, you didn't like this opinion back when we did the first Ahsoka episode um, about her appearance in, in Mandalorian season two. I, I love Rosario Dawson. I really do. But um, I see her through like Ahsoka's character. Like when I, when I'm looking at Ahsoka, I see Rosario Dawson playing yeah. Ahsoka, mm-hmm. um, which, which I really struggle with. And, um, and I, I don't really, and I think it's just, this happens when they use a really big name, you know, presenting a new character like this. And and I think halfway through the series, I looked at Ryan and I was like, 
I think Rosario Dawson should have played Hera and Mary Elizabeth Winstead should have played Ahsoka. And he was like, oh, I don't, and, and I don't know why, but I, I've always felt like Ahsoka was a little bit more like nuanced and, and delicate. Like she, she got things done by being smart and Hera was more of like this powerhouse of like, let's, let's just like get things done. And I felt like that's how Rosario Dawson was playing Ahsoka, where she was just hitting harder. A little bit and, more blunt, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Hera's character seemed to, to try to be dancing around things, and I, I just felt like they weren't, they weren't matching up for me. And that's why I just kind of had this moment of like, gee, if they switched, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll pick up on this because, yeah, she when Angie voiced this, it was like something clicked for me because I had had some problems. And uh, yeah, when when I saw Rosario in the Mandalorian, I was like, okay, she's fine. I I think she has room to grow with this character, but we'll see where we go. But something was bothering me right off about Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing Hera, and part of it was the idea that she's still wearing the same costume she wore in Rebels, even though she's been a New Republic general now, and it's 10 years later. Uh, and and that, that, I'm going to say, I think this exposes one of a couple of flaws in Dave Filoni's approach, which I think is his he's having a harder time transitioning from animation to live action. Because in animation, a character always has to be on model. They have to look a certain way, a certain height, a certain color, a certain way. And if if they if they're not drawn exactly or colored exactly right, your mind does this weird little twitchy thing. It's like the reverse of the uncanny valley, where you know something is wrong about what you're seeing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the first season of The Simpsons again. And and that, so everything always has to be on model. And I think that's why he costumed these characters as if it's 10 years ago. And it's like, she wouldn't be wearing that if she's a New Republic general. She wouldn't be wearing the same weird hat with the goggles that she never wears in an orange flight suit. But it was like, no, we need the audience to recognize and remember who we were. And it's so I just felt like that was, that was a bit of an issue. But again, I was like, there's something about the actress playing this part that is not connected with me. And I might, this might have been a little bit of me getting my sci-fi wires crossed with the show Firefly. To me, Hera, who was my favorite character in Rebels by far. I mean, I love Chopper too, but of the, of the humanoid characters that we were meant to identify with, Hera was my favorite. And I always kind of likened her to Gina Torres's character in Firefly. So in that respect, I, my mind kind of filled in this gap that Hera should be played by a person of color. Mary Elizabeth Winstead has very soft, very delicate, very fine features. When I think of Ahsoka, like the first word I think of is sweet, just is sweet in nature. And when Andrew's like, I think the two actresses should have switched places. I'm like, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think Rosario Dawson would have been a better Hera and Mary Elizabeth Winstead maybe a better Ahsoka. And then out of that kind of springs this other idea where I'm going to start getting into some of my criticisms here. Well, I'm hoping that we can kind of balance these out because I don't want this to get too negative. But one of the big issues I had with this was I felt like this story in continuing off of Rebels season four 
should have been a rebel's story. And in that, I feel like this should have been the journey of Hera and Sabine and Chopper and Zeb and Harrison Jason going to rescue their friend. I don't think this mission had to be Ahsoka's story. And again, this is one of those things where I kind of feel like Dave Filoni didn't really know what to do with this character after he brought her back to life in, in Rebels, after he saved her and he brought her back. It's like, he's got this character that could do all of these interesting things, but he defaults to making her just another Jedi character. And I don't know if that, I, I certainly don't think that's the most interesting thing, but I'm also not sure if it's the most appropriate thing. So I think I, I would have, I don't know. There's just, there were a lot of storylines and a lot of characters, like the, the Balin and Shin story. I'm like, you could have taken them out of this show and nothing would have changed. You just would have had fewer lightsaber battles. But at the same time, I'm really, really fascinated. So I kind of wanted them to either commit to telling that story of where they're going or not tell that at all. And if they are going to tell that story, I just I, I want to know soon that they have an idea and they have a vision for where Balin Skull's story goes, even after they recast him with whoever they do. And I I trust they'll have a good a good choice. But um, am I completely wrong on that lay about like thinking that this did, did this story not have to be Ahsoka's story? Was she intruding on somebody else's adventure? Am I way off base there, John? Maggie, what do you think? And Dave, since you're the defender of this, I want to hear about you from you about this too. But John, what do you think? I agree with pretty much everything that you said to one degree or another. There is a lot of strangeness for me on on this, and which builds off of the idea of well, the other part, you know, where I said that what I liked about this was that it reminded me of watching the phantom menace a lot of the negatives of this is that it reminds me of watching the phantom menace <laughs> in that i feel like i should be watching a different part of this story like there's too much that's being left out star wars has always been a thing that's supposed to be you're supposed to feel like you've come in in the middle of the story but you you sh- you should have been filled in enough to be able to follow it this had way too much stuff and way too much reliance on the rebels and uh, rebel stuff and the clone wars stuff. And I really think, and this is something I've been seeing through the star, Wars, the star Wars series up uh, on Disney plus up to this point and to the Marvel's uh, series. to a lesser point, I think these showrunners are forgetting that the audience can't read their notes because there's a lot of things mm-hmm. that they just don't explain. And I guess they expect, you know, just the fandom to fill in the blanks. And I don't think that's a good way to go forward, you know, just for storytelling purposes. And, yeah, I know he came by it right. I mean, the man who was, you know, he was apprenticed to, you know, has you know certain opinions about what poetry and rhyming mean. But that was how he generally wrote, especially the ones that he had that he had direct influence on. There was a lot of things he just wouldn't tell you. And it became Filoni's job writing it to fill in the blanks, you know, later by by subsequent media. And we're seeing this here. And I think Dave was talking about how we're going to be, you know, or alluding to how we're going to be filling in the story to talk about the sequels after this. And it part of this makes me wonder, are we doomed to just have a bunch of TV shows that have to fill in for 
poorly thrown together movies for the rest of Star Wars' existence. <laughs> that is the destiny of, of Star Wars. Yes. Like, make some make some movies that feel half baked and then ah, we'll fix it in the we'll fix it with a TV show later on. Yeah, and you know, all of this I'm I'm saying all these things. I did like this. I frankly I consider this to be the standard in which I'm gonna base other other Star Wars stories off of. This felt good. The negatives were there, but they weren't, you know, as they didn't take me out of it as much as some of the things from the book of Boba Fett or the most recent season of The Mandalorian, for example, that just completely yanked me out of the story and made me wonder if they knew what they're doing in any way. But this makes me feel like, all right, there's a story being told. Let's go. As to how a lot of it unrolled, I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. Well, okay, so I'm one of those people who likes Star Wars and doesn't like Star Wars. I like the idea of Star Wars, and I want to love Star Wars. I like the aesthetic, I like the universe, but I've been uh, more often than not disappointed by the storytelling in Star Wars. And Ahsoka, I think, is a really, the character is a good example, because she didn't exist when the prequel movies that her shows are based off of were made. She's supposed to be this hugely important character to one of the most important characters in the saga, and she's never once mentioned in the movies. She's created afterwards and put in these other shows and now has a whole show based on her. And luckily, she is a cool character, and I'm glad she exists because we need more women in Star Wars, and I think she's really cool. Uh, But her whole premise is flawed, And I think it's a good example of the problem with Star Wars being so obsessed with telling prequel stories and not just getting on with it. That sounded a little harsher than I meant it to. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like hate Star Wars and I didn't hate the show by any means. I'm looking forward to season two. But I felt like most of this season was setting things up for the next season. Like, why not give us something cool now? Wrap up your plot points because you never know when an actor might pass away, it turns out. And then set us up to give us a little teaser for new stuff that's going to happen in the next season. Don't sacrifice giving us something cool now for giving us something cool later if you get the chance to, maybe. Because there could also be, I don't know, like a Screen Actors Guild strike and a writer's strike. (laughs) You know, I'm just saying. (laughs) These things happen. You know, I'm kind of rant. I wandered away a little bit of what I was getting up of, of Ryan's original question. If I can get back to that, there's two things going on with that. This was, it felt like it should have been a Rebels story. But on the other hand, these didn't feel like the Rebels. I didn't feel like, I didn't see very much of, of the Hera character in this depiction of Hera. She looked like her. She didn't act much like her. And she didn't act like a five years aged version of her. And can I just say, where was Zeb? Can I just really rant about that for two seconds? Where was Zeb? Why did we get Zeb in season three of The Mandalorian if he's not going to show up in here? I, I thought his absence was pretty noticeable and kind of weird. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Dave, your response to all of this? Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> no, first, let me say that, John Maggie, I think you make excellent points, and I do agree with a lot of what you said, and I think it's it's all very valid. Um, I think for myself, I'm kind of looking at this a couple different ways. So let me let me hit on the characters and whether they've changed or not changed. I think part of it is that at the end of Rebels, there was this fracturing 
of this team that we came to love, right? Uh, that's how the story of Rebels ended. And part of the story that we're getting uh, is that we're seeing this new republic is not all fantastic like we think it is. We're seeing this in, in Mandalorian Season 3. We saw this, well, not just Season 3, but we're also seeing this here in Ahsoka. You know, we have this character who is very much against Hera going after Thrawn or going after Ezra. We have, uh, I think Hera is showing the wariness of not being out on the front lines, but being a bureaucrat general and not, uh, you know, having the opportunity to be the person that she was. The, the Where she is today and the world that she lives in is completely different than the one she lived in 10 years ago when she was fighting for her life and fighting for the life of the rebels. Ahsoka also has, uh, in fact, that's one, one point I want to bring up is Ahsoka. If you'll bear with me here for a second, I think that, you know, if the question is, is Ahsoka a Jedi? Is she not? Does she have an apprentice? Does she not? I think if you look at Ahsoka as someone, if, if you relate this to say someone that is religious, and then deciding that they don't believe in this religion anymore, but they believe in the morals and the values that this religion taught and that they can be a morally good person without the rules of the religion, then I think Ahsoka works very well. She, she to me, and that's how I relate to her because I'm not a religious person, but I'm a very moral person. I at least feel I'm a very moral person. And so I see the point of view of Ahsoka as trying to lead a, a morally good life and lead something without the rules that other people are telling her she needs to lead, lead by, live by. But she can do that without that structure and still be the same kind of good person. Now, Balin, this other place where we're going over there, I regret that we lost Ray Steven. Um, I do think some of this is meta. I think we're setting up, unfortunately, we may be in this cycle for a little while of having to correct the mistakes of the sequel trilogy. Um, we saw that in Mando season three, where they started talking about Thrawn coming back, and we saw Paleon and we saw um, uh, General Hux's father uh, show up on, you know, in this secret cabal of imperial generals and warlords talking about what they're trying to do to the republic um, so i think we are unfortunately going to have to get this set up we've got to take these characters off the table somehow now bringing thrown back over to the main galaxy is not taking him off the table but he's got to be taken off the table eventually and we've got to move sabine and we've got to move ahsoka out otherwise we are left wondering why didn't we ever see them in the sequel trilogy I think uh, there's some setup here with, um, and this is going to get meta, meta a little bit, but I think there's setup here with James Mangold and his potential movie of a origin of the Jedi. I think we're getting our answer here of where his movie is going to go. I think we're getting Balin seeing, and maybe it was even a setup for Balin kind of overarching a structure of, you know, like a, a bookend mm-hmm. to his story where we're going to see Balin eventually come upon the origins of the Jedi and the origins of the Mortis gods and to discover that the Force may have started somewhere else. 
And again, this plays into the religious part of what if you suddenly discover that your beliefs and everything that you've known and been taught about your religious structure, you now discover this key piece of evidence that changes the whole thing. That brings some pretty heavy philosophical things to think about. Yeah. So I'm throwing that out that that's a possibility. To clarify for anybody watching, because I, I'll admit, like, um, when the season ended and we only see Balin standing on that sort of mountainy, rocky formation that looks like the statue of an old man, like pointing, I was like, okay, that looks like something awesome out of game, out of uh, Lord of the Rings. I had no idea what the connection was. And only then, like, I watched a video and I was like, oh, this is relating to, for anybody who doesn't know, there was a, a, a trilogy of Clone Wars episodes that dealt with these, this place called Mortis and these, these, characters were very godlike and kind of represented there was the, the the father the son and the daughter and the daughter represented the light side of the force and the son represented the dark side and the father represents the sort of balance between the two and this whole thing it was, it was a really kind of incredible set of episodes that dealt like with um anakin basically seeing a vision of his future wiping out both the sith and the jedi but um, not really knowing what what that meant or, or being able to stop it so not knowing that 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 was Balin's mission until the last second of the episode was really cool, but also, again, frustrating because, again, I felt like there was so much about these characters' motivations and plans that I felt like were withheld from us for no reason. Characters' objectives and motivations weren't told to us in a timely fashion. They were held until later on. So we were like, like for like the first six episodes, I'm like, I like Balin and Shin because they look cool, but they've said like five lines of dialogue between them. And I don't know anything about them. I have no reason to care about them until they get to this other planet. And Balin's like, Oh yeah, I'm just, I was just hijacking a ride here. I've got my own agenda. I don't care about any of this Jedi versus Sith or empire building and stuff like that. I'm doing my own thing. I'm like, Okay, I wish I knew that uh, beforehand because this is kind of interesting. The thing that you mentioned that we talked about earlier with Filoni kind of being the heir to George Lucas and and being the one person who's able to kind of capture and recreate his vision, I think to some degree this is this is another another flaw or another pitfall is that he is perhaps too beholden to the Jedi because I think whether by intention or accident. I think the Jedi that George Lucas envisioned for the Old Republic are pretty boring characters. I I don't think it was an accident that the whole premise of Star Wars was that these guys were wiped out through their own negligence and misuse. And that when the story really began, when the, he first told them, is that these guys were white, like were were nearly extinct. This idea of characters that are are, are so disengaged from um, uh, emotional attachments and uh, like these these personal connections, they frequently feel aloof and like they just don't care about anything in the prequels. And I think in animation you can get away with that a little bit more. And and in the Clone Wars, they were definitely able to play with that a bit more because. The characters could be more static because in, despite all of our ages, it was ostensibly a children's cartoon. And you can have protagonists and heroes that are static and, and that don't necessarily show a lot of emotions. 
the most interesting Jedi are the ones who are usually really young and on some kind of learning curve, like Luke when he's first discovered, like training in The Empire Strikes Back, like Rey in The Last Jedi, like Anakin in um, Attack of the Clones. I've said he has 99 problems, but being boring isn't one of them. And, and Ahsoka, her journey throughout the Clone Wars, as a like kind of young neophyte needing to learn the rules, they're interesting. And then the other interesting Jedi are the old burnouts, like old Obi-Wan, old Yoda, and old Luke. Those are the ones that are like, are allowed to be funny and cantankerous. All of the Jedi in the middle are like, Mace Windu, and they don't have personalities. We don't really care about them. And I kind of feel like that was a problem in in this world because a lot of times I was like, what's Ahsoka doing right now? And she's just standing with her arms crossed over her chest, looking kind of in the middle distance. And I'm like, can you do something? Can you show me that you've got some blood pumping through your veins? And I don't want to blame the actress because I think more of it was how she was wrote and how she was directed. I just think the vision of the Jedi is that they're, they're too aloof for their own good. Am I wrong about that one? Like, Angie, what do you think about that? Well, yes, yes. I, I do agree with that idea that like the, the old school Jedi were very flat characters I think something about the Disney, like the Disney franchise of Star Wars, that like it's a pattern that I think I've been seeing with a few exceptions. And it's usually just because they don't show up for very long. But I, I feel like these new Star Wars Disney moments, they can't handle Jedi. Like they, they just do odd things with their characters. And, and like there's some things where someone will argue with me and be like, yeah, but like this makes it more interesting. But I'm, but some of the things that just kind of drive me nuts is I feel like the writers just don't care who the characters are. And they just do, like, I, I feel like throughout Ahsoka, like, there's some fun things, but it also feels like the, the characters are idiots in service of a plot line. And it's like, well, why are they doing that? Oh, because they, they just can't leave the planet yet. And, and just odd things where they just don't remember how someone would make a decision. And I feel like, for instance, the, the Ahsoka that we see after Clone Wars, they, they never fully figured her out. Like, I agree with this idea that, that Dave brought up that she can, you know, she can be part of a religious idea without being part of the religion. But she's also doing odd things like telling people that they can or can't be in the religion, right? Like she's telling Grogu no, you can't be a Jedi and in telling Sabine, like, nope, you can't be a Jedi and then changing her mind. And, and it's like, she can decide she's not Catholic anymore, but she can't go around baptizing people. It's just like this odd thing where she doesn't, she can't, sorry. Um, It's just this odd thing where she, she can't decide. And I also feel like the writers can't decide what Jedi are, right? Like in the in the prequels, we have these Jedi that are it's it's about blood, right? Like how many midichlorians do you have in your blood? Like that dictates how strong you are in the Force. And then and then we have these other storylines where first it's like, well, Rey has these crazy powers and she's not trained, and where's it coming from? And and then it's like we have the kind of what is it like sleeping beauty moment where they keep changing the color of the dress because they're like no ray is no one oh no ray is a palpatine and they just keep changing her back and forth but this idea that like either a jedi has this innate ability that they're born with or if you work hard anyone can be a jedi 
they can't both be true, can they? Like, I just find that I just find that odd. I, I I don't know if I answered your question. No, I it's a, a lot of this just comes back to like I feel, and I don't know if this was Dave Filoni or if this was if he was getting other like pressure or something like you need another Jedi character because you need another lightsaber battle in these particular episodes. Like there really was no reason for Sabine to be a Jedi in the story. Like I don't I don't think that contributed anything other than giving her a lightsaber because the, the whole thing with the training and and the training was just weird because they kept changing the reasons. They kept like changing the reasons for her not being a good Jedi. Was it because she was had no force sensitivity and she just she was just a bad pupil and, and Ahsoka gave up on her? Or was it maybe something inspired by like that world between worlds thing was Ahsoka was afraid of sending somebody off to go to war, like during the Clone Wars, when she saw all of the soldiers that she had to lead when they all died. And she didn't want that same thing for Sabine or what we hear at the, in the very last episode, which is Sabine was going through the whole fall of Mandalore and her whole family being wiped out. And like, and Ahsoka was afraid of her turn. Like that was relevant information. Why didn't we learn that seven episodes earlier? And I, I just, they kept on making up these reasons. And I was like, I, I, I think putting the emphasis of making her a Jedi was just a mistake. Like if they, if they needed her to have an apprentice that she was afraid of, like, Make it Jason Sandula or something. I don't know. That's again, that's just one of those things that just didn't make sense for me. Um, I also, I from the moment that I saw the trailer, there there was this moment. They were like, "Oh, there's this this big threat that the jet, like only the Jedi can, you know, address." I can't remember how it was worded, but it was it was essentially saying that like we need it, we need a Jedi. And then the next cut was to Sabine, and I think both you and I, Ryan, were like, "Wait, what?" and <laughs> Where's Luke? And I, I, well, right. And I'm just like, so I guess they could have gotten away with that. But in, in Book of Boba Fett, they had that kind of horrible interlude where, you know, they, they had Luke and Ahsoka together and, and they didn't need to be. And it was kind of random. And, and I'm like, so you have a major threat and you need a Jedi to help you and you're going to go get Sabine. Like, again, like I, I think if they had just cut like you said, Ryan, if they cut um, Ahsoka out of the story and it was just Hera, Hera would have gotten gotten Sabine. It would have made total sense. Just a, a quick tag on because, yeah, Angela, just that was really good stuff about the Force sensitivity and consistency. And what's one thing about it, I think, that's worth mentioning is the idea of Force sensitivity itself comes from the West End role-playing game. Which both Timothy Zahn then um, used a lot of you, your character was either had you had to have force sensitivity in order to use Jedi powers. This term was then kind of floated around. Timothy Zahn used a lot of the role playing stuff. And then Dave Filoni definitely was a role playing guy, just using um, definite specific uh, vehicles and characters and, and things from that. Somehow during that, the idea of force sensitivity just kind of got blended into the extended universe, then legend stuff, especially in the Jedi Academy stuff. And then it just became a thing. You know, you were either force sensitive or you won't. And like every time that they've tried to either define or play with that, like either in the sequels, you know, where they were saying, no, it can be anyone or here or that they kind of yanked the rug under it. So I wish they would just make up their minds. They don't want it to be midi-chlorians. They do. They don't. But all of this is like, can anybody be a Jedi? Can only Skywalkers be Jedis? Can Grogu be a Jedi? Who knows? Well, yeah. My- can I throw one 
Go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. There actually was a line in Rebels where Hera asked this very question about Force sensitivity and Sabine to Kanan. And Kanan answered with, well, actually, everybody has some, everybody has a connection to the Force, some more than others. And it depends on, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, it depends on how in tune you are with and how trained you are with reaching into that sensitivity to the force. And I think specific to Sabine, it was in the, in the context of rebels that there was a lot of distraction that Sabine was experiencing, which blocked her sensitivity to the force or tapping into the force. And I think there were definitely ways of exploring that idea that you can, despite never showing any outward potential or connection, you could through meditation, through train, like tradition, through through training, in some ways condition your body to be more force susceptible or, or more, have a greater aptitude to the force. I think they've kind of done that with Princess Leia. By default, they kind of had to explain over time the, the retcon that, oh yeah, she has to a potential Jedi too because she's Luke's twin. If she's the daughter of Anakin, she has to have almost as much force, even though that was never a part of her character because they didn't realize that they were going to be brothers and, or sisters and brother and sister until the third movie. But yeah, getting back to that, that whole flipping flopping idea of, uh, of like the nature of the force in the sequels, I think that just comes down to like a very, in, in retrospect, it's almost comical in the way it's, it's defined by the directors where you have Ryan Johnson, whose essential message in The Last Jedi is, no, Rey comes from nothing, but she has just as much potential to be a great Jedi as any legend that we've heard before. And this little kid pushing a broom on the street of Canto Bight can also be a powerful Jedi someday. It, it's not about bloodlines. It's just about, you know, who, who you are inside. And Ryan Johnson usually has a pretty populist and anti-elitist message in his other movies, like especially if you look at like Knives Out and Glass Onion. So it's funny that that would be his message. Contrast that with J.J. Abrams, who is a Hollywood Nepo baby, basically. And he's like, nope, she's the daughter of the most powerful force user, or the granddaughter of the most powerful force user of all time. So I just think it's funny that they're, that you can look at the directors and their personal ideologies and where that they framed the nature of the Jedi and the force in their movies. We need to get into the Grand Admiral Thrawn of it all. Uh, this character who debuted ooh, 30 years ago now in the novel Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn and was pretty immediately a fan-favorite character and, and sort of this terrifying new villain because coming out of the original Star Wars trilogy, we hadn't seen a villain like this, a villain who was not a Force user, who was not the Emperor Darth Vader, who didn't rely on on lightsabers, but relied instead on his mind and these interesting quirks and these interesting tricks that made him strategically brilliant. Um, Angela, what is your thought about Grand Admiral Thrawn, or what did you think about Grand Admiral Thrawn going into this series? I love Thrawn. He's one of my my favorite characters. Um, I, I read the Heir to the Empire trilogy when it came out. I was psyched when um, Timothy Zahn wrote another trilogy and then another trilogy. So there's there's six new Thrawn books out there. If if anyone out there doesn't know that, I think that's a PSA that needs to be, you know, put up in lights. 
So I, I'm very, I'm very excited that they they brought Thrawn to a live action live action screen. I like Lars Mikkelsen a lot. Um, he wasn't quite what I expected. I, I think I, I think if I my my fan casting for Thrawn was always more of like a like probably more of like a Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, just a little bit more sleek. But I, I guess the the thing I struggled with with like I, I I love like please like don't misunderstand me I loved seeing Thrawn in in this show it was great but I didn't see the strategic brilliance that I expect from him and I, I felt like he he basically like he could have been any imperial officer on that ship and he he would have acted the same way like that kind of little moment where he was like oh ahsoka tano is anakin skywalker's apprentice and i don't want to drop anything because there, there's some spoilers there in terms of um the newer novels but um he kept kind of referring back to i knew she would do that because she's anakin skywalker's apprentice and it's like what do you mean she like she didn't want to die like I, I don't understand what brilliant strategy he was coming up with, and 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 really just these odd moves where they could have left the planet and just left them there. And he actually said that, like we we don't have to kill them, we can just leave them here, and then they stayed. And Ezra got on the ship, and and just odd things. I I really felt like the writers couldn't handle him, and they really they actually really needed to bring in Timothy Zahn to at least write them an outline of a, a battle plan. I loved Thrawn. I uh, have enjoyed his portrayal. Um, I think it's it's valid to be concerned about how he's portrayed, and I feel that going into this, I knew we weren't going to get the Thrawn that we got in those original novels because I read those when they were published as well. I mean, off the shelf, hot off the press, first printings, uh, because that was the only star Wars we had back in the early nineties. So of course he was a fantastic character, love him. But when he debuted in rebels and we knew that this was, I mean, obviously the time frame for Thrawn was going to be different. So how he was going to be presented in the novels versus in Rebels and then in Ahsoka, I, I had to accept that it was going to be different. So putting that aside, the Thrawn that we got, I really liked him. Um, I do agree that the writers were kind of stuck spinning their wheels to force Thrawn to stick around on Paradia until the last moment, of course. Uh, you kind of had that climatic battle. I, I think that's explained away with the loading of these uh, stormtrooper bodies. I think that's what were in these uh, boxes that the night sisters were holding on. And that's why it took so long. These were all the forces that uh, they lost over the uh, time over the last 10 years. And I think that was in large part to Ezra and Ezra's doing, um, but getting back to Thrawn, I liked the portrayal of, Every road bump that they ran, that Thrawn ran into was just that. It was not, he, he never was concerned about winning the war. It was just these individual battles that he would have preferred to have gone in his favor, but they didn't. That's fine because that's not what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is to load up these bodies and get out of there. Um, so they could have done it a little bit faster. They didn't. I get it. That's part of storytelling, but I really, like the way he sent 
people to their death and was and everybody was happy to go to their death for him and you know everybody from Elizabeth to these stormtroopers and they just accepted it for the greater good of the empire on Thrawn specifically I think he's a great villain but I I do agree when you have any character described as being a brilliant master expert whatever you better hope your writers are too because otherwise it's probably not really going to come across that way. And I agree that it didn't. His biggest threat seemed to be that he had a plan and we didn't know what that was. Obviously he didn't want him to get back into the galaxy because then he's got all of his resources potentially again and blah, blah, blah. But as far as being a villain goes, I mean, he's great and chilling and it was really fun to actually see the unflappable Thrawn get flapped by Ahsoka and her two baby Jedi coming to storm the castle. I thought that was pretty cool. Like she really put him on his back foot and that's not easy to do with Thrawn. I did like that. Yeah. So that was a cool moment. I generally, overall, I like Thrawn and I'm excited to see what kind of terror he wreaks across the galaxy in season two. Watch this. Um, So I um, actually, I lose so many Star Wars points because I generally haven't liked Grand Admiral Thrawn before. Uh, this is the first time that I've actually viewed him and saw him as a threat. Let me explain. Uh, the problem that I've had with him in most of in Heir to the Empire is that Thrawn is uh, very well characterized and he's depicted as being a tactical genius. Timothy Zahn isn't. So therefore, what t- what generally the way he operates is that he has deus ex machina level uh plot knowledge is how that works you know and it works in the context of of the kind of story it is but it it just wasn't for me and it wasn't something that i liked still i enjoy the character here was the first time i actually saw that work and it was twice and it was in his first time when when he shows up it was the moment he realized ahsoka tano he asks for everything he can possibly get on her basically scans it, sees Anakin Skywalker, and that's all he needs to know. He then realizes, okay, this one's an agent of chaos. I want her over there. Manipulates events so that she lands where she is and then has to deal with stuff and is uh, kicked back on her heels and then retreats. And then stands there and talks about uh, very calmly about how great his victory was. That was awesome. I was like, okay, I got this guy. Then the next episode happens, and then he sends people back and then hangs around for a while and throws a bunch of zombie troopers at them, and it was a little less so. But still, overall, (laughs) I really like both the portrayal of him and I like the potential of where he has to go, knowing full well about the problems with relying on potential in this franchise. I think it was when I saw the fan, the first Fantastic Four movie from the 2000s, the one with like Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis and Jessica Alba. That was when I, the first time I realized, I was like, oh, I think this screenwriter is afraid to write a genius or just doesn't know how to write a genius character. And I, that that was one of those times when I really, and, and in reading a lot of comics like Fantastic Four or Iron Man or something, you can tell when an author really can tap into a genius level character and has enough smarts about them to feel comfortable with that character and how they express themselves. And I think John, you, you may, may describe, I think Timothy's on at least knows Thrawn so well that he, he can present him to the world as a genius level character. That's, that's always the smartest one in the room. And I just, I, I 
didn't get that from this show. And yeah, this was one where I, I, I do, I wish, you know, when we, when we see him next, I hope Dave Filoni outsources the, the script doctoring for, for some of Thrawn's part because, well, well okay, even before getting into the, the micro on a macro level, we're told the greatest threat to the galaxy is the return of Grand Admiral Thrawn. Why? Why is he so dangerous? Th- this show breaks, I think, two creative writing 101 rules. And one of them is show, don't tell. This series frequently tells us things about characters or, or things that we don't actually see depicted or we don't see evidence of. We are told that Grand Admiral Thrawn is the super military genius and that he's the most terrifying guy. And John, you did a better job of explaining it than I think the show itself did because I saw him being very reactive to things and, and not having a verse. And I also felt like if Thrawn was that smart, like the whole taking two days or whatever to load all of these crypts, all of these coffins into your ship. I was like, Thrawn would have had this timed down to the second. As soon as they got there, he was like, all right, let's go up. We're out of here. He wouldn't have had the Star Destroyer in atmosphere. He would have had it in orbit. There are all these things where I just felt like the plot is writing the characters instead of the other way around. Um, Thrawn looked cool and he sounded cool, but... I didn't feel the real examples of his menace and the, and the threat he portrayed. I, I just felt like if you if you had replaced him with Admiral Piet, the decisions, the command decisions he made would have been roughly the same. I in terms, I mean, this, I mean, the throne is he is they they are setting this up. Whether his story continues in Ahsoka season two or Mandalorian season four, they've basically said that all of these things are are building up to a new movie that Filoni is going to shepherd, and I think that is his the movie is going to be about Thrawn versus the New Republic, possibly with Thrawn's new army of you know, zombie Daphomary witches or stormtroopers or whatever that is. And I think that can be very, very cool and very, very exciting. But I don't know. I just, I hope, I, I hope they have uh, some more, some more script doctoring on, on his character because I, I didn't see a lot of tactical brilliance in there. I saw the same problem that I had with a lot of the other characters, which is they were always reacting to things rather than being proactive and, and making decisions to challenge the story rather than just flow along with the pace of it. Um, any other thoughts on Thrawn before we go to a different topic? <laughs> no, but I think no. those are all excellent points you bring up. Okay. All right. Um, then the other thing besides Thrawn that had how like most of Star Wars fandom squeeing with delight was the uh the chapter five, the world between worlds, when we see this vision of Anakin Skywalker visiting Ahsoka. And again, I feel like I'm in the I I was in the minority with all of the reviews I was seeing of this episode because I was like, this looks great, but the dialogue, there's something wrong here. Um, because I felt like this, this whole sequence takes place because Ahsoka has been has lost a battle to Balin. She has fallen into the water. She essentially is at the moment where she could be drowning. So this whole episode more or less could take place like in a second or something like that. But it's 
I feel like functionally, this is the point where the hero is at their lowest. They've been beaten down and they need the pep talk from, from coach Mickey or some, or somebody to kind of boost their spirits to give them that rallying cry where they, they realize they have some kind of catharsis. And I don't understand what the catharsis was in this episode because I felt like there were weirdly conflicting messages. Like, she sees a vision of herself as a child in the Clone Wars, her first experience with the clones dying, and Anakin talking to her about part of the job of being a leader is sending soldiers off to die. I was like, okay, is this what does this have to do with the mission right now? Is this why she was keeping Sabine at an arm's distance? I, I don't know. And then the idea, like, did she feel guilt about Anakin turning the dark side? Well, we don't address that. He he stops her from even asking that question. And then at the end of it, like, he, he kind of puts her to this question of, you have to choose whether to live or die. And it's like, was wait, was Ahsoka that down? Was she that depressed? Was, was Does anything about that character in our history with her ever seem like she's the type of person to just give up and quit when something, like, lives are at stake? Like, was she really going to just resign herself to drowning or did she need her, her, you know, her, her wrestling coach to say, get back in or her boxing coach to say, get back in the ring and keep fighting. You know, like I just, I didn't get the message or whatever they were trying to convey in this episode. It looked pretty. There were amazing shots of like Anakin leading the clone troopers into the smoke. It isn't where there's like a lightning flicker and all of a sudden he has the silhouette of Darth Vader. That's jaw dropping. It's like, wow, the, the animators earned their money on that one. But again, the dialogue, I'm like, I, I don't think you're having the right conversation here. And am I, am I crazy? Am I in the minority here? Or what do you guys think? I agree with everything you said, Ryan. I thought that episode looked really, really cool. And I thought the flashes between Anakin and Darth Vader were awesome. And like sometimes so you could see often uh, like in the distance, those really big walking machine thingies with the cannons in the front was so cool and very Star Wars. It made no sense at all because the whole thing was, well, you either fight or you die. And then at the end, when she's fighting him and he's got the yellow eyes of the Sith and she kind of has the yellow eyes of the Sith, she says, I choose to live, which is great as words, but we haven't seen an example of her not living. She was looking for Thrawn, uh, presumably to kill him and end him permanently as a threat to the galaxy and hopefully find Ezra in the process. And that doesn't strike me as someone who's not doing any living. So what was the lesson there? Live or die? It's like cake or death. <laughs> I mean, cake, it, please. It just it really irritated me because it looked so cool, and in it, the the little girl who played young Ahsoka was great um, and looked very much like Ahsoka, like little baby Ahsoka. But it just meant nothing to me when I watched it, and I I've seen like YouTube videos of people with their theories about what it meant. But I don't feel like any kind of thing like that came through clearly that was going on in that episode. I, I didn't get what the message was. I have a theory. I put a lot of work into it. And so, therefore, I think it's right. <laughs> yes. Now, mind you, this theory does rely on a lot of reading between the lines, knowing a lot of stuff about, you know, about uh, Ahsoka from Rebels and things. And basically the idea that Filoni forgets we don't read his notes. But if we accept the fact that 
we've got two things going on. We got a literal and figurative living and dying here because she's fallen in the water, ready to drown. This is a literal, you have to live or die. You have to wake up. So what all of this is, is basically this is some either, you know, it's a forced vision or a dream or whatever. But what this is meant to do is get her to wake up. Also, she manages to work out some deep psychological problems, apparently. So you really got to figure out what those are. <laughs> so her big guilt complex Ahsoka's big guilt complex is that she is guilty because she left the Jedi Order. And once she left, Anakin turned to the dark side. And she feels that if she could have been there, if she hadn't left, if she would have been there, that she would have been able to both possibly recognize that Palpatine was the Sith and possibly stop Anakin's fall. Which, you know, to be fair, probably could have. She was smarter than all of the rest of the Jedi Council. But that aside, I think this was about her having to realize that it wasn't her fault that Anakin turned to Darth Vader. And I think that is shown because what he says to her before this all starts is you have to decide, are you going to live or die? And then takes her back, you know, to this flashback of the Clone Wars in which he's telling her, no, if you're a Jedi, you're going to have to fight. You're going to do this. He's giving her all of this information. This is not Jedi information he's giving her. And then when she, when he turns and walks away, that's when he flashes to Vader this all builds to the point when he kicks her back to the world between worlds, which, by the way, never mentioned or referred to as being something they had seen before or tied into the owl that they see later. More on that. <laughs> but as they're back there fighting again, what it builds back to is that he's then becoming Darth Vader and has to fight her. And then what we get again is her final the trial, the final test that she has to basically make, draw, come to the same conclusion that Luke did, which is confronting doesn't mean attacking. And then when he's when, so that when he's there, when she confronts him, disarms him, throws the sword away and says, I choose to live. Now, why she didn't say I am a Jedi like my master before me, I don't know. But regardless, this is her epitome it's the realization that the force is really more than flashing lightsabers it's not my fault that anakin anakin's destiny is his own my destiny is my own now i can find my destiny i can wake up i can be alive i can be gandalf the white i can charge and break saruman's staff it's going to be great <laughs> there I think that's better. It's, I definitely think that's better. It's, it's still. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you really, so really, really got to reach for that, but it is there. I really, I completely agree with Maggie. And I think, I think, John, you're right that that's what they intended. But I, I think they used the wrong words, right? <laughs> like, like, like you said, like saying, I choose to live. Um, and I, and I've never seen from Ahsoka that she is like, I, I think it's a good assumption. Like, I think it's reasonable to assume that she is experiencing some like guilt or doubt about Anakin turning to the dark side, but we never really see that. They could have fed that to us, right? They could have given us something in the dream sequence that said like, Hey, she's actually feeling. And, and that could have linked into the, like the, the little line that we get later where they say like, she didn't, she, she left Sabine because Sabine was so angry about Mandalore, like, you know, being, 
you know, completely destroyed that, that Ahsoka was worried that she was going to turn to the dark side. And then she wouldn't train Grogu because she, you know, saw what attachments did, which honestly she didn't really see it because she wasn't there, but whatever. So I, I think that they had the structure in place, but they just didn't, they really missed an opportunity with all that dialogue where like they he was talking about, you know, sacrificing people's lives and, and her living and not talking about guilt. And I, I feel like they, like, I totally agree with you that, that that's what they were trying to do, but they, they buried it so deep that I, it was more like, I just felt like I, I didn't, I didn't do the reading and I didn't get it type of thing where I'm like trying to catch up in this discussion. And I, and I'm like, Oh, I missed something. I feel like the writer's room and Filoni basically had like the whiteboard with the notes for the whole series. And they, they talk about having like a, a story Bible for the whole show with all of the notes. And I felt like at some point they locked in, okay, episode five is going to be character protagonist has an existential crisis that they have to work through. And by the end of it, they are catharsis. But at no point during episodes one, two, three, and four, did they build up to that existential crisis. Dave, Dave, what do you think? <laughs> Hard to follow up John there. So I'm going to say ditto, <laughs> but that does both John and I a disservice because John, that was, that was amazing because I did not, I did not pick up on any of that mostly because I turned off my brain when I saw that sequence start and, and basically what you're saying is kind of what I felt in that because it wasn't fed to me. So I didn't see it. And so for me, I just interpreted it as, Oh, here's a bunch of fan service. Here's some fun stuff to look at. I didn't look at it deep, but clearly there was depth to it, but it wasn't obvious. And I needed it. I need my star Wars to be obvious sometimes. And this one, this part of it was not obvious to me. So I just sat back and looked at it with, the eyes of, oh, okay, cool. They're talking to Clone Wars. They're servicing the fans. Great. I would have loved to have gotten what John just described out of it, though. I think that would have made it that much better. I did have to watch it three times because <laughs> I had no clue what was happening. The first time. And but thank you very much for your compliment. I appreciate it. And again, like that, that whole episode, sort of that episode and the, um, and the finale kind of epitomized more than anything else. Like my, my feelings of this show is so beautiful to look at. And there are amazing jaw dropping moments of musicality and gravitas and wonder. It, but the, like to borrow, to borrow a line from 30 rock, you ruined it with your talking. It's like, just, just, <laughs> just stop. <laughs> just those pesky words just get in the way. Um, so yeah, yeah, but dialogue again, and yeah, the the finale. But there was so many cool things if you just go with the flow and 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 ride it out with that finale. But I kept banging my head because again, these these simple storytelling rules of showing don't tell and characters to drive the plot and not the reverse. But I felt like so much characters said things and did things and behaved in ways just because the plot needed them to do things. And that makes the characters reactive or passive. And those are not fun characters. And they often seem sometimes dumb because they're, they're 
doing things that are out of character just for the sake of getting into the right position for the next scene. So yeah, I mean, I kind of, kind of bring it, bring it to a close. This was a disappointing series for me. I didn't hate it. There's a lot that I really, really enjoyed about it. I'll probably give it a rewatch in a couple of months or, or a year or something. Like I, I was really disappointed by Obi-Wan Kenobi. I went back and watched it a year later and had a lot more fun with it. So I'm hoping that'll be the case for you. But overall, it, yeah, this was disappointing because I, I, I really thought Filoni had the, these, these certain tricks that he had shown in Rebels and Clone Wars in the bag, but seeing him bring those, and I don't know if it's just a translation of animation to live action or if he's running out of ideas, but I just thought there were a lot of silly writing mistakes and just some storytelling decisions that I was like, yeah, I don't think this was the right thing to do. So I was bummed. But again, not wanting to be not wanting to be such a downer. Like, obviously, the story will go on. He has not confirmed specifically that there will be an Ahsoka season two, but we know things are going to go on. There is going to be a fourth season of Mandalorian, which is supposed to pick up some of these threads. So we might see Hera or Ezra or other other characters and and the the rise of Thrawn continue in that series. Um, and. Uh, and at some point, this is supposed to build up to a, a movie, like a heir to the empire type of film, you know, or, or possibly more, um, which I believe everybody's kind of just assuming will be about, you know, Grand Admiral Thrawn and, and possibly, possibly setting up the seeds of the first order and, and making some sort of connection to the sequel trilogy. Who knows what they will do? Um, I am very, very intrigued by what happens with Balin and Shin, and especially if they have some sort of connection to uh, the Mortis gods. If they do that, uh, oh gosh, Dave, you mentioned it. I, I can never remember his name. Who is the director? Who is the other director who did Indiana Jones 5? James Mangold. James Mangold. Thank you. I can never remember his name, and he's one of my favorites because he directed Copland. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. But yeah, James Mangold is supposed to be directing a Star Wars movie that might be about the origins of the Force or might be set in the way the longer part, like the, the way it was just explained was it, it has nothing to do with the Skywalker saga. It's something completely separate. Um, and I love him as a director and storyteller. So I'm really excited for that. I don't know if I want him to deal with the Mortis gods uh, that I, I kind of feel like that's Filoni's sandbox. Let him deal with that and let him continue to tell that story with Balin and Shin and now her potentially Ahsoka and Sabine. And Ahsoka has at least encountered them before, so she might have more of a reference. So maybe that's the whole point of her being stranded on Peridio now is to deal with that. So I am excited to see where that story goes. But yeah, so bring it to a closer. I, I want to hear from each of you kind of closing thoughts Thumbs up, thumbs down overall. What did you like? What are you going to take away from this? What are you excited to see next? I'd say overall with the series, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. It, <laughs> That's mom for mad. <laughs> um, there were things about it that I liked and there were things about it that I found irritating, like sand that's coarse and gets everywhere. Um, I'm going to, if there is a season two, I'll watch it, but I'm not going to hold my breath. The thing of it is, is like I was getting at before I like star Wars. And so I keep coming back 
to Star Wars. There's some of it that I haven't seen, and I've I've never read a Star Wars book in my life, but I I like the universe and I want to like it more. It just keeps not giving me a reason to, but I'm going to keep trying because I do like the universe so much. It had things I liked, things I didn't like, and I'll come back for more. I'm a little little more positive than than Maggie on that. Yeah, this wasn't Andor for me by any stretch, but it doesn't all have to be Andor. It's just kind of what I was thinking about while we were talking about, you know, the the prequels and how it, you know, it lasts and we it's still it's cool that we get to revisit it in in different ways to legitimize aspects of it. But but what we forget or what I forget, what I think a lot of us forget, is that these are primarily kids' stories. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and Andor is going to be the exception, you know, that treat for the adults that have hung in there to give you just really lean on the sophistication. And that's its own thing. Everything isn't going to do that, and it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's going to be some bizarre, weird, you know, childish stuff in that. But it's that's because it's a kid's show. Mm-hmm. And so... I think this, there were problems, and most of the problems, like Ryan was saying, were really storytelling problems, and hopefully Fellini kind of grows into that a bit if he keeps up, and I think I even saw evidence of that as as it went here, at least direction-wise, but it's like, I think this is a good standard in which I will base the future things for. There were a lot of stuff before this that I just really thought that the bad things um, were much more of a detriment to it than this was, and that the good things were there, that I could look through them and see the good things. The characterizations I didn't like, it was fine. They were still characters. It worked, et cetera, like this. So going forward, I think I I I, I like it. Now, mind you, this did apparently, or this obviously cost him a pretty penny. I mean, they spent a ton of cash on this one. They had to release it in the theaters, you know, to try to recap this. So it remains to be seen as to whether or not they'll be able to put out other things that look this good. And there is the other elephant in the room, you know, that Dave was getting to before, which is either a positive or negative. By insisting on doing prequels all the time or by putting all these things in this time frame, they are hamstringing themselves by being forced, you know, there's, no matter what happens here, no matter how many Jedi they rediscover, we are facing uh, Kylo Ren's going to wipe out most of them. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been in that situation before, and all it did was come up with exceptions. Are we doing that again? So it's like uh, everyone died except for these guys. Who knows? It's just kind of I really wish rather than trying to make the last one make sense, I really wish we would just move on. Let's move I, forward and past this so we can get to new stories, you know, so it it could. And this isn't doing that enough. I'm so. convinced there's somebody at Lucasfilm who's like been like like this like hunched over a desk and said, Okay, when Obi-Wan said the Jedi are all but extinct, and he like, <laughs> is looking at like, like techni- technical like definitions of that. He's like, okay, there were ten thousand Jedi during the Clone Wars. If we reduce that to just one percent, that's all but extinct, right? If a population has decreased to one percent, well, that still leaves a hundred Jedi left. Beautiful. We can tell stories yeah. with a hundred Jedi running around the galaxy. When he and says, 
the yeah. Sith, the always two there are, one more and one less. That's just Sith lords, right? <laughs> we can come up with other Sith things. Inquisitors don't count. Inquisitors, sure. Dark Jedi, yeah. No, and uh, to, to your other point, like, I, I agree, like, Andor is this weird kind of genre transcending thing because of the political allegory and the the sort of science fiction nature of it. I also, I also love Star Wars when it's just swashbuckling children's fair, like the return of the Jedi was. And, and that's, I I did get a lot of that from this. So Um, Dave, overall thoughts and impressions as we go from this one. I enjoyed it. I had fun. Uh, This has been a great conversation. Uh, Gave me a lot to think about. But I'm sure I will go revisit this. I will be there to watch every episode of season two if we get that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Star Wars, I mean, John pretty much said it for me, which is these are kids' stories. And I was, you know, four years old when Star Wars came out. So, for, and as I mentioned in the last episode, this has been a through line through my life. So I will always love this. This will always be my mythology. And there are, Star Wars stories I love dearly and Star Wars stories I don't love nearly as much, but I've never had a Star Wars story that I've hated or really disliked. So I'm looking forward to it and I'll I'll be there till the bitter end. Good for you. Good for you for saying that. So first I want to echo that I, I really enjoyed Andor and I want to point out that there's no Jedi in there. So (laughs) they did really well with it. Um, Anyway, there are shows that when they end, I already can't wait for season two. And in this one, isn't one of those shows, right? But I do want to be clear that I would rather have okay-ish Star Wars than no Star Wars. So I will definitely watch anything they make. Like, I'm, I'm still there for it. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank all four of you for coming on this episode to talk Ahsoka with us. I uh, hope the listeners enjoyed this conversation. Before we sign off, uh, we do have the Galactic Questionnaire. So I've got three questions for you guys. So I'll start off, Ange. Your favorite Imperial officer, not counting Grand Admiral Thrawn. Come on. So from from Ahsoka or from anything? No, from anything. Books, movies, canon, non-canon, anything. Oh, I don't know why. I've always been a really big fan of Admiral Piet. I think it's just his facial expressions. <laughs> um, but but Tar but Tarkin as well. Like I, I and I think it's mostly Peter Cushing. But but yeah, Admiral Piet, his facial expressions. I felt like we're we're always a really good foil for Vader's temper tantrums in Empire Strikes Back, especially. Nice. Dave, same question. I mean, there's there's a lot of really good officers, but my favorite is Maximilian Veers. General Veers. Nice. First of all, the greatest archaeologist in the Empire. <laughs> I understood that reference. Good. If you don't get that joke, go look I, it up. I got it, too. I got it, too. Yay. I love that joke. But beyond that, he had a mission, and he did the mission, and he succeeded. And he was top-notch at getting the job done. He had to go in there and destroy that rebel base. And boy, did he go in there and destroy that rebel base. (laughs) Yeah, Veers is great. I almost wanted to do him, except, you know, in the novelization of Empire Strikes Back, Veers actually gets um, killed immediately after doing that by random uh, snow speeders crashing into the cockpit of the Adat. 
Yeah, we didn't see it on screen though, so it's not. No, nope, so it doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, oh man, my favorite guy. I would have said Piet because Piet's just great for being in that situation. It's like, oh crap, I got the sorcerer that's, that jokes everybody. I better do my best here before I'm. You know, I'm on borrowed time. Uh, the, he's great. My favorite Imperial guy is the ISB officer from Andor. The, uh, what is, I don't know his name, oh. the, the white haired guy who's just, just the matter of fact. I oh, was, the, the director, the, like the head, yeah. the chief IP? Yeah, his, I don't know. Uh, Yularen, Yularen. Admiral, Admiral Yularen. Yularen. He's yeah. the best. He is just the epitome of imperial bureaucrat for me. He was an ISB for the Republic. They became an empire. He shrugged, put on a new uniform and kept up at it. He is so, compelling and awesome and i can't wait till end our season two to see what else he's up to i'd have to go with hux because <laughs> nice. I, like, I like to see an imperial officer pitch a hissy fit and <laughs> my i feel like we had a connection because when his blood pressure rose my blood pressure rose it was a very visceral shared experience um so yeah i'll i'll, I'll choose hux I don't I don't usually answer these questions myself during the questionnaire, but I want to give a shout out to uh director Krennic from Rogue One, uh just because he gave us the meme, we were this close to perfection. And I, <laughs> I always I always see that meme on Instagram now. So uh, um, he, he's he's a close second, and it also gave us the it's beautiful meme as well. <laughs> yeah, and that one too. Um, Maggie, we'll start with you now. We're going to go in the reverse order. Then. What is your lightsaber color? Ooh. Oh. Well, I mean, if I was going to like make my own lightsaber and I got to choose what color lightsaber I was going to have, it would 100% have to be green. But as far as like existing lightsabers, I actually really like Ahsoka's. I like the white lightsaber. Green for me. No further comments. Dave? Oh, tough question. I guess I'll have to go blue. I'm also blue. And I will say mauve. There's a Cheers reference for my other podcast friends. Um, Can I just say that the orange orange of Shin and Balin looked amazing? I I wish it was more obviously orange. I feel like there are too many shots where it's just like a lighter shade of red. But yeah, I do like I do like the orange color. So that that's yeah, I'm glad that they've finally got those in there. Um okay, finally, third and final question for this one. Um, John, in honor of Halloween coming up, what is your favorite mask or helmet in Star Wars? Oh, uh would have said Boba Fett back in the day, but it's been overdone. Uh Boosh. Ooh, nice. Princess Good one. Didn't, wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. Star Trek. Uh, what they were also the Breen in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Maggie, favorite helmet or mask in Star Wars? Okay, can I kind of break the rules and pick the helmets from Spaceballs? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, I'll allow that one. All right. <laughs> All right, I'm going to be sappy sentimental here but um the x-wing fighter helmets because we we made one for reese when we got his first helmet oh very cool very cool all right john what's your favorite or sorry uh dave your favorite din jarns i really like the mandalorian's helmet very cool very cool uh john maggie i'll let you plug your uh your shows where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcastosphere 
Oh, we are MWC Podcast, which stands for all sorts of things. Either married watching cartoons, married with comics, uh, macaroni with cheese was the latest one. <laughs> yep. We also occasionally do um, just married with Cybertron, which translates into the Rod Pod, which we do with John M. Wilson, where we're covering the IDW Transformers comics in order. And all of that is just on our general feed that you can find wherever you found this or any other good podcast. Just search for MWC Podcasts or Married with Comics will get it to it or ask your Alexa device to play MWC Podcasts. Also, over on the Longbox Crusade Network, we every month do uh, Transformers Chronicles along with uh, Pat and Delvin. She already did it. She's not going to do it again. So I will say, hi, Pat. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, That's where we cover the Marvel Transformers uh, issues in order. Uh, That's about it. We're not on Twitter slash X slash whatever it is. Uh, If you want us directly, get us at marywcomics at gmail.com. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Dave, anything you need to plug? Uh, Just keep listening on the network. Maybe I'll be back again. Uh, Ange, anything you want to mention? Are you going to let me back on your podcast after this? <laughs> someday, yeah. Not on the next episode, but someday. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thanks all four of you for being my guests on this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Until next time, folks, Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or you can e- email me at ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support shows like this on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts to support your favorite podcasts on the Fire and Water Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, the Force will be with you always. Always.